so time passes quickly away. Now the third day, and this will be the, the last talk I give. Um, it'll be a half day tomorrow, and then we, we finish up. The title of this talk is The Fifth Noble Abode. Now you may know from your Buddhist studies that there's four noble abodes, which are loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and they're the they're the um, emotional or, or, or conscious mind states that are cultivated through when we wake up out of the self-centered dream, and part of the transformation in character that takes place through Dharma practice. Um, but I've added a fifth one, and it's confidence. And that's what I'd like to talk about today, what I've been talking a little bit about in Sydney at session lately as well. Now, with the four noble abodes, as you may know, they come with a far enemy and a near enemy. So, like, for instance, equanimity, the thing that's obviously the opposite to it is restlessness. But sometimes, also, for the sake of clarification, they put in what they call the near enemy, which is a thing that looks like it, but it's not quite the same. And for example, with equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. It kind of looks sort of calm, but it's not quite the same. It's true peace. And if we look at confidence um, in that same way, then it's obvious opposite, it's far enemy, is um, worthlessness, but what its near enemy is, is arrogance. Looks like confidence, but not quite the same. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to look at that a little bit more today. And as a way of starting this, I'd like also to um, begin with um, a talk I gave last Tuesday in, in Sydney, which is about the koan, Nansen kills the cat. Doesn't sound very Buddhist, does it? Nansen kills the cat, very famous koan, very instructive. The story is that um, in a monastery, there was a, a left wing and a, 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 an east wing and a west wing, and the monks of the east wing were arguing with the monks of the west wing over a cat. And Nansen, Nansen the teacher, came in from working in the fields and he saw all of his monks arguing over a cat and so he being the, the quick-minded teacher that he was and rigorous teacher that he was he said oh, I'll use this as a, a point of practice uh -huh. um, and so he gets the cat and he picks up the cat with a knife in his hand mm -hmm. and he says if someone can say a word of Zen you'll save the cat but if no one can say a word of Zen, I'm going to kill the cat. I'll chop its head off. And uh, no one could say a word of Zen. So he could chop the cat in two. And uh, later, when Joshu, um, as you know, who's one of the, the great Zen teachers in our lineage, who was Nansen student, came in um, the next day, and Nansen told him the story. And Joshu took off his sandals placed them on his head and walked out of the room. And in Chinese culture, taking off your sandals and putting them on your head 
is an act of bereavement or grieving, an act of bereavement for the, the dead cat, the poor pussy who lost his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we look at what's going on in this koan, by the way, when most Zen teachers uh, give a, uh, a Taisho or a Dharma talk on this koan, they they assume that that they that Nansen role played killing the cat. You know, they, so they do this chopping and then the, the the cat you know running off. But whether whether he actually really did kill the cat or whether it was a role play, the point is still the same. <laughs> but it's quite a challenging teaching. The thing with koans is what you do is you when you work on them, it's like you they're not just intellectual and they're not even just metaphor. You've got to kind of imagine yourself in the situation, in the story. Like you've got to be the story and the context of it. So imagine what's... I could imagine what was happening in that situation. All the cats, all the monks are arguing over some philosophical difference about the cat, whether it had Buddha nature or not, who whether it was the mascot of the west wing or the left or the other wing, and they're arguing over it. You know, they're they're trying to win points and be right, and they're caught up in that. Should have been sweeping the floor or doing zazen or gardening or something. You know, but that's what they were doing. And uh, so Nansen just puts them on the spot. You know, you do all this Zen training. Say a word of Zen. Demonstrate your insight to save the cat. Everyone's frozen. No one says anything. I could imagine what was going on in their heads. Um, it'd be kind of like this. Well, maybe it's that, but maybe if I say that, it'll be wrong, and everyone will think I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, is it right? Is it wrong? So while they're hesitating, you know, the cat's going to get killed. Hesitating, hesitating, doubting. Am I going to look good? Am I going to look stupid? Am I going to lose status in the group because I've said the wrong thing? All of that creates this kind of frozenness and there's a consequence. Nansen kills the cat. Mm-hmm. And by contrast, contrasting the indecisiveness of the monks is the decisiveness of Nansen. The decisiveness of Joshu just puts his sandals on his head and walks out. Mm-hmm. There's something about Zen practice which, and I don't quite fully understand the process, but it, decisiveness seems to come out of it. I think it's because we become less caught up in thinking and it's more of an intuitive, we're more in touch with what's really happening right now rather than getting caught up in a lot of thinking and saving face, etc., about making right and wrong decisions, um, then, then we tend to act intuitively and more appropriately to what's actually happening in front of us, and then we can respond. Um, one of the questions that a Zen teacher will ask you if you work on this koan at some point in time is what is the central act in this car? That's one question in itself. And if you can see what the central act is, you'll be able to say some words to save the cat. So 
if you're really present to the circumstances of your life, rather than thinking about it and analysing it, then the natural confident response comes forward. One of our other well-known koans, which um, I've spoken of before, but you all know, is um, Joshu's dog, from which the koan Mu comes from, which is our first koan. Uh, a monk asks Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Joshu throws a curved ball, answered out of left field, no, it doesn't. The scriptures say all beings have Buddha nature, therefore a dog's a being, so therefore a dog has Buddha nature. That'd be the, that'd be the logical response. But he says no, which becomes a challenge to the monk. Now, when the monk asks that question, as a beginning Zen student like us, he's, becoming, he's asking the question because he lacks confidence. And we all do. That's what brings us. We've heard all these great teachings about all beings have Buddha nature and that we can wake up to our own Buddha nature. But at some, at some level we're all going, you know, let's, I'd like to do that. That all sounds really good, but do I really have Buddha nature? And does that mangy dog really have Buddha nature? Hmm, got my doubts. Mm -hmm. That's where we start off. And what happens through gradually, sometimes suddenly, but generally gradually through the process of years and years of Zen training, um, if you're really working with it, confidence grows, not arrogance, confidence. Mm -hmm. um, and we we can be grateful to Joshu for not just giving that monk an intellectual answer, which would have been, it would have given him some kind of momentary intellectual understanding that might have momentarily relieved his anxiety a bit. But by saying no, he made the monk dig deeper right, to, to really grow into a, into a, a real grounded confidence, not just an intellectual confidence. Now, one assumes when the Buddha had his awakening experience under the Bodhi tree, before that he was this, he was this earnest young man searching for something, searching, searching, searching. And then he has his realisation which is always discovering the obvious. But one assumes what happened is that when he had that insight, there's a transformation in his being and his body language. And then he meets his friends in the forest, you know, his other hermit friends, and he shares it with them. And they, they see a difference in him. You know, he's not, no longer this searching, earnest young man. He's kind of full of confidence. Mm -hmm. Not arrogance, confidence. And uh, and when Dogen, you know, comes back from China with some awakening, um, you know, people see a difference. Some some quiet confidence about him that doesn't have to 
shout its name. And they say, what did you find? What did you, what did you understand or what did you find that made the difference? And Dogen says his famous statement, well, what I found is that my nose is um, vertical and my eyes are horizontal. That's what I found. Um, you hear stories of um, conversion experiences in um, Christianity where people have found God and they, they develop some kind of sense of, of confidence. Yeah, it might happen. But what is God? Mm-hmm. You see that old man with the beard sitting on a chair, you know, with piercing eyes. Mm-hmm. Or is God the dog pissing against a lamppost? What about that God? What about the God that's just in the nature of everyday life? Like we were talking about yesterday, that organic intelligence that runs through all things. If we become intimate with that God, if we find that God, then there's a a very grounded kind of confidence comes through because it's connected with everything. It's not just a separate ego identity. Now, in talking, the talk I gave in the last session in Stroud, which is a variation on this one, was self-confidence and non-self-confidence. And what I want to emphasise, and I'm not setting up confidence that it's based on an experience of non-self against self-confidence. There is a, a worldly kind of confidence that people can develop. I don't want to say it's bad and the other one is good. Um, If people develop confidence from any kind of experience, well, that's fine. Um, It's just that worldly confidence is not really that grounded. It's kind of a bit shaky. And people gain confidence from, primarily from social status. The higher up the ladder they are, the they better they feel about themselves in a worldly sense. And people may get social status from their wealth, um, their physical attractiveness, their intelligence, their skill in a certain area of life, from their political power. And I don't mean just mean um, professional politicians in government, I mean political power in the workplace or political power on the street. Mm-hmm. Physical prowess, people may get athletic prowess, people may get confidence from that. But these are all things that come and go. They're kind of shaky. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, they may bring confidence. If you get a PhD, that might give you confidence. You know, if you make a lot of money, it might give you confidence. Okay? but it's kind of shaky. And if we realise that, that that kind of confidence is shaky, that's what brings us to practice. That's what brings the monk to the temple to ask whether a dog has Buddha nature or not. Mm -hmm. Looking for something deeper. Now, a lot of psychologists, including me, would say that um, confidence is based on our 
early attachment and bonding experiences. And, and personally, I believe there's a lot of truth in that. And um, if we're fortunate enough and we're lucky enough to have received unconditional love, particularly for the first two years of our life, um, then it's probably going to grow a more confident human being, despite all the other adverse things that might happen in their life. They'll be able to navigate their way through life because they they had that light shining on them um, of unconditionality and that sense of being um, loved for not because you were clever or pretty or whatever. You were just loved for who you were. Well, that's unconditional love. What a what a gift for a child to be able to experience that. Mm-hmm. And so all of our scientific understanding seems to demonstrate that if people can get that um, secure attachment, you know, from those early years of their experience and growing up beyond it, um, they have more of a, a calmer, confident experience of their, their place in the world. It's not necessarily based on social status and things like that. There's a deeper sense of confidence comes from that. And I, like I said, I, I believe there's a lot of truth in that. But I don't think it's the whole truth. And I think what Dharma practice gives us is um, a, a, a confidence where that might be a platform that we work from. It's a good platform to work from a secure sense of, of, of attachment in the world. Um, but there is a kind of confidence that comes beyond that, um, which is grounded in suchness, which is grounded in being, which is not just grounded in being an individual, a separate entity. And there are exceptions to the rule about attachment and so on. And it's always interesting to look at exceptions to the rule. Um, I don't know if you know of a, a book which was written probably back in about the 1980s or 90s called A Fortunate Life by a Western Australian man called William Facey was his last name. I think William Facey. Um, when you read the book, it's not what you would conventionally call a fortunate life. He was physically abused as a child, neglected, grew up in poverty, put, sent around from family to family, etc., and grew up to be a wonderful human being. How does that happen? I don't know. But it happens. And if you look at um, these kind of examples within the Zen tradition, in Japan, in pre-European times, um, uh, they didn't have Christian, they didn't have orphanages like institutions like Christians developed, you know, where a lot of um, children, orphan children would come together in an institution. But what the Buddhist temples did and what the Zen temples did as an act of trying to help those kids and out of an act of compassion, they would bring some of the boys into the temple who would live in the temple and they'd grow up to be monks. So those boys have had um, an unfortunate 
unfavourable beginning in their life and they've been thrown a lifeline. And it's known within the Zen tradition that a lot of those young boys who are orphans are the ones who end up being the Zen teachers and the abbots of the temple. And what happens there? And even Dogen is an example of that. He, his mother died when he was five. And um, he watches the incense smoke at her funeral pyre disappearing into the, into the sky, into the empty sky, and has this sense of a five-year-old as the impermanence of life. Mm-hmm. Becomes the burr under his saddle that makes him want to look deeper into what life is about. My sense is some people, not all people, but some people who have an unfortunate beginning through trauma, abuse, whatever it might be, they're they're not as comfortable as people with a secure attachment and they don't grow up just to live a kind of comfortable middle-class life. Somehow that 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 pain, that suffering, that burr under the saddle motivates them to look even more deeply as to what true peace is and what true love is and what true confidence is. So they, they search more outside conventional worldly confidence and go deeper. The Buddha did that. Other people have done that and found a deeper confidence. Now, when you take up Zen practice and you do a lot of Sazen and you do session year after year, uh if you do it long enough and you do it There's two things really that are required for this practice to really work. And they they go together, they're complementary, they're not they're not opposed to one another, they're they're complementary. One is self-honesty and the other is compassion, self-compassion, and you need both. And self-honesty is just being willing to just see what's really there inside of you without any editing, without airbrushing it, what's really there. And the other side of it is to see what's really there without harsh judgment of right and wrong. So it's kind of, it's both of those things. And we often use the metaphor of a mirror um, as a way of um, understanding mindfulness. So a mirror it's true, it's non-judgmental, it doesn't, whatever comes in front of it, it doesn't judge it as attractive or ugly or good or bad or whatever, it doesn't judge. But a mirror also accurately sees what is there without distortions. So it sees all the flaws and all the form, everything. Mm-hmm. And it's with the mind of a mirror that we practice mindfulness. We see what's actually there and we don't judge it. But if you sit for long enough, if you're like me, um, you sit for long enough and, and you, you see painful, unpleasant truths about yourself you know, that you resentful sometimes, spiteful sometimes, narrow-minded, small-minded, petty, hang on to things. Um, all of that we experience if it's authentic mindfulness. It's not just a feel-good experience. It, it, it ends up being 
a, a peaceful, joyful experience, but it, it can be a painful, a painful journey mm-hmm. if you really look at what's going on. Um, but all of that process is humbling. Mm-hmm. The um, the root the Latin root word of of um, humility or being humble is humus, which means as in soil, being down to earth. So when you're humble, you're down to earth. Humility is being down to earth. Um, Humility or being humble is something that someone with a narcissistic style wants to avoid at all costs. Mm-hmm. They can never be humble. They, their false confidence is arrogance um, because they've never, never touched pace with their, with their vulnerability. They can't go there. And what you learn through Zen practice is that it's a paradox. If you actually are down to work, and humble, right, and not putting on airs and graces, um, paradoxically, you become confident. You, I, I can say it, but you just have to know through your own experience. You have to trust the process. That's a kind of a face. If you actually practice being humble, you become confident. Um, there is a, I think it's a Turkish saying or a Sufi saying, um, the person who sleeps on the floor can't fall out of bed. <laughs> if you're down to work, you can't fall anywhere. Solid on the ground. Mm-hmm. If you climb the ladder of success, you're in a wobbly position, you can fall. Mm-hmm. But if you're on the ground, pretty solid, eh? So paradoxically, um, Cultivating humility by being really in touch with what your momentary experience is, it brings confidence. The other side of it too is about vulnerability and power. Um, in the readings you do, do you have one in there by um, John Wilwell on power and vulnerability? I think it's really good, that one. That really, that really teaches us too that not only is paradoxically the cultivation of humility brings confidence, but also as John so beautifully, eloquently describes in that brief little essay, when we take off the hard shell of power and all of our power strategies in the world, being right and wrong and so on, being right instead of wrong, you know, or up instead of down. When we take off all of that armour and that hard shell and we actually touch base with our vulnerability within that that softness within the hard shell of the egg, um, paradoxically again, we become confident Mm. because we're in touch with what we really experience and we have no shame about showing that vulnerability. It's the shame of showing the vulnerability or the fear of, of showing the vulnerability creates so much suffering, particularly in relationships. Reflect on this. Um, like being in a marriage myself, um, 
you have times where you're in conflict with your partner, you know, and you get into a fight and you both in your different camps with your different views on a on the issue you're fighting about. It can become very it can become angry at times, it can be very become very tense at times. And then in the midst of that, your partner shows a glimpse of vulnerability and your heart melts. Right? And you just drop your self-righteous position and, and the right and wrong. And somehow that vulnerability really touches you. Mm-hmm. And it changes everything. It touches your own vulnerability and then something, there's a connection, happens again. It's kind of like that's a little metaphor what happens in a, in a marriage. It's kind of a little metaphor for what happens in societies and communities and so on. We're all, we're all, we're all in our, our little power game, you know, and our, our power moves and strategies to defend ourselves, whether it's personal life or public life. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to allow the vulnerability to show, but paradoxically we do. And it's a great place to be. Humility, vulnerability, rather than arrogance and power. Mm-hmm. And that's what moment to moment Zen practice, session practice, preset practice, it all moves to in the direction of dissolving all those barriers. Mm-hmm. So there is worldly confidence. But the confidence that comes through from Zen practice is what you could call a kind of organic confidence, which is really being in touch with the organic intelligence which is us and runs through us. What we might call, think when we use terms like Buddha nature, do you know, they, they seem so foreign in a way and a bit abstract. But really, when you look at it, what Buddha nature is, is organic intelligence that runs through all things. What Wu Wei is in Taoism is just the organic patterning that runs through all things. A seed grows into a eucalyptus tree. That's intelligence. Mm -hmm. Your heart beats blood all the time, your lungs breathe air, that's intelligence, biological intelligence, organic intelligence. As human beings, we only identify very narrowly with our conscious, rational mind, and that's who we think we are. And it's just the tip of the iceberg, and underneath the iceberg is the body and all of and our unconscious working of our brain. It's far more intelligent than the, the conscious, rational part. You know, it digests our food, it breathes our air, it makes our heart beat, it looks after us in all these various different ways, but our conscious mind doesn't control it. Conscious mind won't have a clue what's going on. Mm-hmm. Organic intelligence, that's, that's primarily what we are. When we stop identifying so strongly with this conscious, rational part of ourselves, and we drop down into embodiment, and we drop down into that organic intelligence which is us, which is connected to everything, well, that's, that's non-self-confidence. Mm-hmm. 
that's suchness that's it's not relative consciousness it's consciousness based on the absolute the suchness of life and it runs through us and it's not comparative because that's the nature of everything we realize that we don't go oh how terrific i am I'm like well this is the way life is runs through all things we develop that kind of confidence um, there's a different way that we um, relate to life and relate to others or relate to the natural world um, where we're not superior to it or above it or whatever we're simply um, connected to it you know to, to go back to my what I was mentioning yesterday too um, I've got a biological ear and a bionic ear that hears. And like I said yesterday, people keep telling me how amazing the bionic ear is. Do you know that human beings can create this thing that hears? It, it, it just, it's just um, a shadow of the intelligence of a biological ear. Mm-hmm. No comparison. And what's happening is that human beings are understanding the, the algorithms more that, that, that um, by which organic biological <coughs> organisms work by and we're trying to work out the algorithms and to replicate them you know and we think we're going to make technological advances on it you know, and do it better than what nature does not so sure mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've been emphasising during sessions lately too is uh, what your homework is when you when you leave session. Um, this is very enjoyable homework. Um, spend as much time in nature as you possibly can. Walk through forests, you know, sit by streams, walk by the sea. You know, watch birds, enjoy it. And by doing that, you'll immerse yourself in this organic intelligence which is always there. You know, and it permeates you right? rather than looking at screens all the time mm-hmm. that just feed your rational, conscious, thinking, verbal mind. Mm-hmm. Immerse yourself in it, and it'll be a, a kind of practice. Bring mindfulness to it, and it'll be your practice. Remember my first talk, which was a rather gloomy one, about global warming. Um, Let me come back and combine that with today. And I made up a koan, um, which is a variation of another koan. How do you save the many beings from extinction? Well, you dance with the fantail. Mm Dance with the fantail. Or you saw like a sea eagle. Right? That's how you save them from extinction. <laughs>